text this evening comes from Matthew chapter 4, if you will. Turn with me in your Bibles. I'm going to read this. Matthew 4, starting in verse 1 down to verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Amen. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Our Father, we're grateful for Jesus. He's died for sinners, and by faith, not by works, we can be united to him. And all his righteousness can be credited to all sorts of sinners. By faith alone, we can do this. What a glorious truth that is. And we thank you, too, that Jesus was the prime example of what a man should be, of what a man ought to be. We thank you for his example and we pray we'll learn from it tonight and we'll pray that we will revel in his salvation. Speak even through me this evening for your people's sake, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this account, this is a rich account and there is so much that could be said here. But this is one of those sermons that upon preparing it was really what not to say. There are many angles you can go at, many things that can be said. So part of the battle, as I was preparing, was just what do I not say? What I do want to say is in line with what Pastor Ryan has been preaching upon the last few weeks, and in line with a few of the things that I've preached upon in the last few weeks. Pastor Ryan's been in Matthew 2 and in Matthew 3, and we're going to pick up in some ways where he has left off and touch on some of those same themes, and then likewise, as I've talked about the humanity and the divinity of Christ recently, we'll pick up on some of those themes. But to begin, I want to draw your attention to two notes here at the outset. 
first in order to set us off in the right direction. First, note that it is the Spirit that drives Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit does so. The passage immediately before this one tells us of Jesus' baptism. Pastor Ryan, this is what he spoke about last week. And at the baptism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present. And it serves as a commissioning or an anointing for the ministry of Christ. And Jesus is set apart as one who is well-pleasing to God the Father. And the Spirit then descends upon Christ like a dove. So at the outset of his public ministry, Jesus has grown up. He's now 30 or so years of age. And this is a change from his life as a carpenter. And now he's set apart. And the Spirit comes upon him. And the first thing we read about is that he's driven into the wilderness. It's odd, I think. If you haven't read the Bible before, or if you've just taken this for granted, think about how odd this set of events are. In Matthew, there's this miraculous birth from a virgin, and there's these prophecies that are fulfilled. And then Jesus is baptized, he's set apart, and then straight into the wilderness. And the wilderness wandering that Jesus is about to go upon has a purpose. And the purpose is that he will be tempted by the devil. And this is the plan and has been from the beginning. Jesus does not just go wandering. He does not just find himself lost in the woods. Jesus is led. Luke says this very strongly. Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit. And that shows even more for us. He's driven into the wilderness. So this is with purpose. God wants him in the wilderness. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all make this apparent, clear. It's especially noteworthy because Jesus, if you recall, in Matthew 5, he teaches his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation. And then here we are. Just before that, seems like the Spirit is leading him into a place where he'll be tempted. Why would the Spirit do that? Well, of course, God is not tempting anyone with evil. We should not say that God is tempting Jesus. The devil tempts Jesus. But it's apparent, it's very clear that the Spirit pushes him, drives him to the wilderness. Think about this too. Why? Why does he need to be out there? Wouldn't his time be better spent healing or teaching? Why this time in the wilderness? Perhaps you've thought about this. Notice verse 10. Jesus says to the devil, Away from me, Satan. Have you wondered, why didn't Jesus just say that right at the beginning? The very first temptation. Why didn't he just say, Away from me, Satan. But he actually went through three of these. Why? Sometimes I think when we hear a teaching on this passage, the focus is very often on how Jesus responded. And that's worthy of our consideration. I'll get into a little bit of that tonight. But tonight, I want to focus on what I think is more of a primary point in this passage. 
And we'll get there. One more note, however, before we jump in, and this on the nature of temptation. Sometimes you may hear that word temptation, you may hear that word testing. Really, these are the same word. God may test your faith, or the devil may tempt your faith. What's the difference? Well, good question. Satan, of course, is tempting you to evil. He wants you to fall. What does God want? For you to increase in your faith, to increase in your Christ-likeness. So what the devil may deem for evil, God will use for good. The wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years may seem cruel, but it was for the good of Israel. Think about that. The wanderings may seem cruel. Remember when Israel was led out, they crossed the Red Sea, and then for 40 years they wandered? What is God doing? We could say that he was testing them. Before bringing them into the promised land, God had Israel go through this season in order to mature his people. His aim was to have them grow in character, to grow in their dependence upon him. Remember, he gives them manna from heaven. They got thirsty. What did they have to do? Well, they should have prayed to the Lord. Instead, they grumbled. God wanted his people to learn, to rely, to cleave to him. Like a wife to her husband. That was God's aim. And this is what that period in the wilderness, I think, was designed for. Each and every step, God was there to lead and provide for them. He rained manna down. He provided water. He gave them Moses, a mediator and a leader. And in a similar way, I think believers are tested today. We're tempted by the devil, of course. But are we tested? The Bible says, James says, that when we are tested, we should rejoice. We should assume that we're going to be tested. James 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What happens in a trial? You will be tested. The devil will try to use it for evil. God will use the trial for good. James says... That in all things, even in trial, rejoice, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces patience. This testing is a good thing. When a test comes upon you, when a trial comes upon you, rejoice, for this is a time to grow. James says it produces patience. And then he says, let patience have its perfect work. That you may be perfect or complete, lacking in nothing. Or consider Romans. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's your standing. You're in the gospel. You're in Christ. But then Paul says this in Romans. And not only that... But we also glory in our tribulations. We could say trials, testings. We glory in them, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. 
And after that comes this whole slew of things. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. When trial comes upon you, we rejoice. And when we think back to that account of the Israelites in the wilderness, we can say, oh, God is cruel. Could we say that? Of course not. God is using those 40 years for their good so that they may cleave to him as a wife to her husband. So with these caveats, these notes out of the way, we can dig in now. We'll do this under three headings. As I look at this temptation account, I think there are at least three benefits. We'll talk about three of them tonight. For the church, three benefits the church receives because Jesus overcomes the temptations of the evil one. Three benefits the church receives because Jesus overcomes the temptations of the evil one. The first is this. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. This was mentioned in last week's sermon. Jesus undergoes baptism in order to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus identifies with sinners in this way. John comes to him and says, you're going to baptize. I'm going to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says to him, we need to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And throughout all the gospel accounts, especially here in Matthew 4, we see that Jesus keeps the righteous requirements of the law. In every way, Jesus obeyed. And this made him capable of being a perfect sacrifice. We need a sacrifice that's without blemish. The Old Testament, they needed sacrifices without blemish. We too. The problem we have is that no man is without blemish. So Jesus comes, the God-man, and uniquely lived without sin, without blemish. And this makes him unique, and it makes him uniquely capable of becoming that righteous sacrifice to God. And his temptations are going to play a part of this. 1 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We need his righteousness. We need him to live rightly. How do we know, though? How do we know that Jesus is going to live rightly? How do we know that he's going to obey where we did not obey? This account fills us in. As we get into it, see the devil comes and tempts him. The devil is everywhere in Scripture. In Proverbs, he's pictured as a woman, actually. Proverbs 7, you may recall this. The adulteress, the harlot making an overture to a young man. A woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. She's like the evil one, lurking, waiting, prowling. And here we come upon the devil. I think the question here in the back of our mind should be, what is Jesus, now that he's been baptized, what is Jesus going to do with all this power? What would you do if you had all that power? The first temptation 
gives us gives us insight into what Satan thinks of Jesus. Jesus is led into the wilderness, and when he sees him, he casts that doubt, doesn't he? If you are the Son of God, he's just been baptized. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, everyone's there. And there's this affirmation that he is the Son of God. Okay, if that's really you, Command these stones that they may become bread. Why is he tempting him in that way? What's the big deal, actually? He's hungry. He's been fasting. Would it have been a sin for him to take these stones and make them into bread? What's the purpose? I think the only way to answer this is to see that Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets. We'll get into that. In a moment, Jesus answers him, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone. What we see plainly in the text is that Jesus knew it was not his time to make bread, but God drove him into the wilderness for this very reason, and Jesus refused, refuses him. The second one, briefly, Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. This is likely a vision. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Think about these first two so far. Think back to the garden. How was Eve tempted. The devil comes along. What does he tempt Eve with? It's food. It's food. And she's a little bitter, isn't she? It's like you're the crown of creation. And they are put in the garden and they're given all of this stewardship and they're given the place above the animals. They're given this star place. And yet there's one thing they can't do that we're aware of. You can't eat of this tree. And here, Jesus is the Son of God. And there's something he can't do. You see the similarity there? Or in the second temptation, he says, he will give his charge. If you throw yourself down off the temple, he'll give his angels charge over you. So really he's saying, the angels are going to come and they're going to save you. What does that sound like if you think back to the garden? Remember Eve? Satan says, you won't surely die. You won't surely die if you eat of it. Is that not the same temptation here? Or the third temptation? The devil takes him up on an exceedingly high mountain. This too is a vision. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus, of course, is here to have dominion over all the world. He's here to take dominion. And that's what's given to him later in the Matthew account. He's given dominion. He's given authority over all the world. So what, what is this temptation here doing? What is this tempting Jesus to do? It's tempting Jesus 
to skip the cross. If Jesus were to just do this, he doesn't have to go to the cross. He doesn't have to go through the trial that the Lord has prepared for him. So in all of these ways, there's some hints that Jesus is succeeding where Adam had failed. Jesus resists the devil, and then he says, away from me. And the devil flees from him and waits for an opportune time. Our second heading, second benefit that we can get from this account is Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. I've alluded to this. We'll dig into it a little bit more. In the next chapter, we read in 517, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And what Jesus means by this is he will fulfill the books of the law and the books of the prophets by his life and person. Jesus' life, in other words, tells a story, and the story it resembles is the story of Israel. Pastor Ryan spoke to us about some of these ideas last week. And recall this from last week. Israel is the Son of God. Jesus, of course, bears that name too. Israel is God's son. Jesus is God's son. Those of you with us these last few weeks have heard from the scriptures how they declare that Christ must be born in Bethlehem. And we heard about the evil King Herod who feared the news of Christ being born. And what did he do? In his fear of Christ, he had men kill every male child in Bethlehem two years old and younger. And a result of this threat from Herod was that Jesus and his earthly parents fled to Egypt. And this is no small detail, even the trip itself and the return to Israel. Once Herod was dead, even these details are a fulfilling of the scriptures. This happened, Matthew 2, verse 15, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart there, so he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn son. And then the people of Israel are led out of Egypt, just like Jesus is. Secondly, Jesus is not only called out of Egypt, he was baptized. This too is like the Israelites. When the Israelites cross the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10 calls this a baptism. It is through waters, and 1 Corinthians 10 says this is a baptism as they pass through the sea. So think about these parallels so far. Israel called out of Egypt, Jesus called out of Egypt. Israel baptized in the waters. Jesus baptized in the waters. And then what's next for both Israel and for Jesus? They both wander in the wilderness. And both are tested in the wilderness. And Israel wanders 40 years. Jesus, 40 days. Their journeys are remarkably similar. So is there any doubt with such parallels that God meant for Jesus to go into the wilderness. 
This is a great kindness, I think. God wants us to believe the gospel. And there's all these parallels, aren't there? And I think they're there. They're not just neat. They're not just cute. They're meant to stir our affections. They're meant to strengthen our faith. God is in control of all things. Jesus really is the prophet. He really is the king who is coming into the world. But the news is not just that Jesus and his life paralleled Israel's. The good news is that Jesus obeyed where Israel disobeys. Jesus obeyed where Adam disobeyed. And then thirdly, the third thing we can learn from this account, the third benefit. Jesus overcomes the devil to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus overcomes the devil to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Why go through these temptations? Like if, you, if you think about it, perhaps some people don't think like this. Perhaps some of you are like me and these sorts of thoughts can pass through your mind. But was this, is there any doubt that Jesus was going to fall? Is there any doubt? Do you think he could have sinned? Is there any drama in the text as you go through this text? Or is this one of those passages as you read it, there is no drama for you? The point, of course, is not drama, but the strengthening of our faith. Hebrews says this, this account in Matthew 4 is very necessary for our faith. It's necessary for Jesus to become the sort of priest we need. Hebrews says this, in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Also says this, he himself has suffered being tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. So something changes as, re as a result of Jesus going through this temptation account. We can think of Jesus sometimes as this fixed person. Of course, in his divinity, Jesus is a fixed being. He does not change. God does not change. Remember, we've talked about the last few weeks. In his humanity, Jesus had to grow up. He had to grow in stature and wisdom. And here, Jesus had to be tempted in order to become propitiation for our sins, but also in order to become a faithful high priest. He had to be tempted by the devil. He had to be enticed to go hungry, to be tempted in every way that we are, and yet come out on top. He had to go through the same sorts of experiences you and I go through in order to sympathize with us. There's a quote here from Matthew Henry that I think is that I think is helpful and then one from Spurgeon Spurgeon says this 
which is a few application points. Spurgeon says, in every position that a man occupies, he will find temptation. So it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your lot in life is, you will find temptation. I have heard of a hermit who hoped to get rid of all his sin by living in a cave. He took with him his little brown loaf and his jug of water, but he had hardly entered the cave before he upset his jug and spilled the water. It was a long way to the well, and he got so angry with himself for what he had done that he soon discovered that the devil could get into a cave as quickly as he could. So he thought he might as well go back and face the trials of ordinary society. No matter where you are, brothers and sisters, no matter where you are or who you are, temptation will come. We must resist. And then lastly, in closing, I'll close this Matthew Henry quote. And this harkens back to Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. I think this too can be helpful. God usually prepares his people for temptation before he calls them to it. He gives them strength according to the day and before a sharp trial gives more than ordinary comfort. The assurance of our sonship is the best preparative for temptation. So here's the point, and I'll finish the quote. The point is Jesus is baptized, then he's driven into the wilderness. And this is a reminder, the baptism is a reminder, you are a son. You are a son, you have this wonderful privilege, and then he's taken into temptation. And what does that do? Well, he's reminded of his sonship, he's reminded of his status, he's reminded of his privilege, and then he's tempted in extreme ways. And God wants us to look back to our baptism, or he wants us to look back to these times in our life where he has called us son, and he wants us to drive, he wants that to drive us through as we resist the devil. The assurance of our sonship, he says, is the best preparative for temptation. If the good spirit witnesses to our adoption, that will furnish us with an answer to all the suggestions of the evil spirit designed either to debauch or disquiet us. So in all things, the Lord must be praised and he must be relied upon. For Christ in every single instance resisted by the word of God. Let's pray to him now. Father, we thank you for this account. And we thank you for Jesus who resisted the devil. And it's an odd account in some ways that you drove him into the wilderness. But we know that this, your word, can be beneficial to us. And we pray that even now, even this evening, it will be as we consider Jesus, the one who overcame and the one who 